that we all, we, we all enjoy uh, a, a great British curry, but what we want is the curry chefs trained here in Britain, so we're providing jobs for people here in this country, and that's what our immigration controls provide. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Hello everyone, welcome back to Leftover. This is Arjun. And I'm Rory. And uh, this week, uh, very, very happy to announce uh, that, you know, we, we have a guest on who we've been... Well, well I've, I've wanted to do this episode for a long time. Uh, and uh, it is none other than a food writer and Giles Corrin's greatest fan, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Nunn. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> Thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for that description. <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's like incredibly embarrassing to be um, described in opposition to such a figure. (laughs) The best, the best thing about it is knowing that he's one hundred percent listening right now. Like if he, if we put your name in the title of this. Well, I mean, on the on the spectrum of food writers, it's you know, it's pretty much. I I don't think that you could have two figures sort of more at the polar opposites of one another, <laughs> you know, within the within the field, <laughs> you know. I, I think like maybe blessed be blessed to get better nemeses than Giles Corrin. <laughs> Do you feel kind of weirdly close to him, like being, you know, like how you feel kind of intimate with your enemies? Is there any sense of that, like? <laughs> well, you mean like. Um... Sort of like the Harry Potter Voldemort connection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I no, I mean you you joke, but I I um I know he is actually a big fan of my writing. I think every person I know who's a mutual um has said that. Which I don't I don't know quite how to feel about that. I mean, you're a very good writer, so I mean he has good taste at least <laughs> on that on that front. I mean, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't be able to say the same thing about his writing. I mean, his writing is genuinely fucking dreadful yeah. aside from the fact that he is an odious fucking human being his writing is truly fucking terrible like it's it's a wonder how this guy has had any career in any you know writing related uh, field whatsoever let alone a couple of decades long career now in, yeah uh, in journalism it's just absolutely fascinating <laughs> like really really is the sort of emblematic fail son of the off the industry isn't he um i'm generally i'm generally really reluctant to kind of attribute <laughs> like ignorance or you know stupidity to your enemies because like you know i think most a lot of bad people are just very intelligent you know it's not it's kind of lazy to uh to just say like they're they're stupid or whatever but in the case of yeah. Giles Corrin he is just a fucking moron <laughs> isn't he like he's he's got this kind of yeah this empty headiness headedness which comes from like a life of passivity just cruising through life just like 
on the flight of life with no turbulence, just going to exactly the same schools and universities as your famous dad, getting exactly the same columnist <laughs> jobs. And like that can go that can go two ways. You can end up kind of naive in an endearing way, like the people on Made in Chelsea or whatever. They're just kind of stupid but not really bad people. But in the case of Giles <laughs> Corrin, you can just if you've got a hint of bitterness and kind of scorn behind the eyes, you can just become just the terrible, terrible human being, which he is. The thing is, I don't, I don't really, I don't really pay attention much to what he's doing anymore. And yeah. I think, I think there's kind of people have been waiting for like that kind of moment where he gets like sacked or like permanently cancelled, which is never going to happen. I think like the biggest punishment that Giles Corrin is ever going to get is the fact of being Giles Corrin. Yeah. Like you have to wake, you have to wake up, like you have to wake up every morning and like, and be him. Like that, that's like kind of punishment in itself. It's a pretty painful existence, but only if you have self-awareness, right? Does he have any self-awareness? That's the question. <laughs> I, I think he does. I think like the, the stuff about Dawn, like, you look oh, at God. What, what you said about um Dawn yeah. Foster like you, yeah. you couldn't think of two people uh sort of more sort of opposed in their yeah. kind of career trajectory like mm. the, yeah, yeah. the 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 way that Dawn kind of had to fight every single thing like society was against her like being it to be put in that position of being in the commentariat and yeah. then you have someone who is basically kind of hereditary commentary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that kind of that kind of has to eat you up a little. Yeah. I, I think. Uh, uh, did you see the photo of him cleaning the graffiti off his house? Someone wrote. I, I don't. Someone wrote Dawn. I don't think. Oh, you don't think it was him? I don't think it was him. But he it looks I mean, just it, like it was him. A but uh, yeah, maybe it wasn't. It was a beautiful piece of graffiti. It was. Um, <laughs> and um, no, I hope he's always kind of looking over his back. Um, wondering where the next one's going to come. Um, yeah, and I mean the other punishment is that he's uh, he's kind he kind of can't come back to Twitter, and yeah. he is like me a massive poster, and that's <laughs> a punishment itself. I mean, he probably has a, he probably has an alt as a Polish person, or something like that. And uh, what was it, Pavel Pilming or something like that? <laughs> that was just incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the name of a character of one of his really shite novels. <laughs> My God. But we are actually not talking about Giles Corrin today. That's not the topic of the discussion. I mean, even though we are talking about food um, uh, and class, in fact, but... Um, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about food and class and, and, and politics and the, and the various ways in which it, it manifests, uh, especially in British society. Right. And uh, especially in 2021, I think it's it's impossible to, to have this conversation without asking the question, you know, is Salt Bay the greatest performance artist of our generation or is he the greatest uh, restaurateur? Is he the greatest scammer or has he transcended all of these ways of even talking about these things you know has he has he truly um is, is he truly doing something new altogether i mean it's, it's interesting because he's kind of like a sui generis character like i can't think of anyone who is really quite like him and yeah <laughs> and yet he does have like a lot of predecessors like i i think 
I mean, one, like Salt Bay kind of comes out of this sort of very masculine, sort of Turkish Kurdish uh, restaurant Instagram kind of aesthetic yeah. where right. you kind of have all these different restaurateurs trying to kind of one-up each other doing really stupid things with meat. <laughs> <laughs> like, in, like increasingly ludicrous stuff. It's a, there's uh, a very sensual virility to it, isn't it? Just a guy playing with meat. <laughs> Like <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely um and but like they they stay they tend to stay like people like i don't know sism uh burak is another um turkish kurdish restaurateur he he's famous in turkey but not so much outside of it whereas sulfate right. is just a phenomenon yeah. like i yeah. don't think there's um there's anyone quite like him but i mean I mean, when I wrote about him, the, the first, my first thought of like who, I mean, there were two things that remind he reminds me of. Like one, like the theatricality of a wrestler. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And, and like that knowingness as well. I think one of the things which is really underrated about Salt Bay <laughs> is that he knows what he's doing. Like it's he, it's very like self aware. This is a man knows, who has a lot of self awareness. <laughs> he knows how funny he is, um, and I think like the media always trying to kind of portray him as someone who's unintentionally funny but he is i think a genuine comedian um, the, the thing in his his restaurants where he charges like 50 quid for a cappuccino but turkish tea is free that is genius like it's incredible like he, even he like couldn't charge for turkish tea um yeah is um but yeah so i think there's there's always this kind of um he's never kind of afforded that the cleverness, um, which we might sort of ascribe to someone else if they were doing something like that. Um, yeah. And then, like, the other thing which he reminded me of was um, was actually Picasso. Um, right, in, yeah. In, <laughs> in the way that um, kind of, like, well, what, what, what are you paying for when you go to a Salt Bay restaurant? Um, you're, you're paying for the experience of Salt Bay recreating this like gesture that he did on Instagram <laughs> in 2017, like this sprinkling of the salt. And I mean, Picasso used to pay for like restaurant bills um, at all his kind of local with, with his signature, by, with a signature or like a little yeah. little drawing, like a, like <laughs> just like a line. Like it, it wouldn't yeah. take him any more than sort of three to four seconds. Like the duration <laughs> of like salt based salt sprinkling. Yeah, and it's kind of like how. Like they're the only two people I know of who have like turned like something which takes about a few seconds to do into kind of money, and uh, yeah, and I mean both of them have created kind of like this whole market around them. Like I mean Picasso kind of created the art market in a sense, and and Salt yeah. kind of created this kind of economy of outrage. And I, I think like the moment where I where I was like, I think I was ambivalent on Salt Bay, and then the moment I was like, no, this guy is a genius, is when um, I followed him on Instagram, and he just storied every single negative article that has been written about him in London. <laughs> and it, it was like it was like 30 pieces, like from the Indian Standard to the BBC, like everyone. And it, it was just like, it was like the perfect repast, like... It's kind of like you are talking about me, um, and I won um, because <laughs> I mean I heard sort of restaurant grapevine when he he posted that he broke the record for like Nusret's 
um, like daily takings, and I, I it was three hundred thousand um, in I one know, day. In, in one day. Wow, um, which is like just a mad amount of money. Yeah, <laughs> London is the cent- the global center of scamming, though, isn't it? That was always going to happen. <laughs> that was always going to get the biggest take. Like the, did you see that viral video recently on Twitter of the um the the lead singer from the band Brass Against who uh, <laughs> pissed all over that guy? That London London is the guy who came on stage with a can on his can on his head. And, and Salt Bay is is the lead singer it's, of Brass Against. It's, 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 it's pissing all over London's face, and it's fully consensual as well. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was extremely, extremely wholesome video. Um, and I mean, what I, I mean, I, I kind of see Salt Bay's kind of. I mean, he's gone now, but his kind of six week reign as like a very wholesome thing. Like it was a lot of guys, like mainly guys although some women as well, just having a good time um, <laughs> doing dude stuff and uh, having good state and paying to see sort of Salt Bay feed them. Um, and, I mean, they pay a lot of money, but, I mean, as I said, it's like a kind of fin Um Yeah, kind yeah. Of like, Almost like this, like, consensual, like, I'm going to, I know that I'm paying over the odds for this, but, I'm going to accept it because kind of like the cultural capital I get from like these stories or from like posting the receipts um, is well worth it. And like ultimately, I don't really see any victims in that. I think it, there's um, yeah there are quite a lot of other restaurants in London where you can kind of say like this is kind of like a malign influence on like the way the city is changing. Um, yeah. But I mean, he's not gentrifying Knightsbridge. Knightsbridge like, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, like like, that's the thing. It's just kind of taking what's already uh, a really over-the-top culture, I guess, and kind of turning it up to eleven and kind of showing it to its logical extreme. I suppose there's an economist called Thorstein Veblen who he thought up this idea of like conspicuous consumption. So it's actually like the act of consumption is a kind of value in it in itself. And I think, yeah. yeah, Salt Bay's really cottoned onto that and he's become sort of the master of it. He, Yeah, you, it's not... You don't go in and pay 37 grand for steak or whatever these, like, ridiculous receipts are. You go there <laughs> for the Instagram pictures. You go there for the experience. But but more, more importantly than the experience, it's sharing that experience and sort of boasting about it on social media. But I think I, I'm, I'm the opposite to you, Jonathan. I, I started off thinking this guy's really cool. Like, seeing the photos of him with, like, Nicolas Maduro and, like, the US politicians, like, Lil Marco Rubio, really, like, angry tweeting about it. I thought, this guy rules. But then, like, the more the more I read into him, I thought, like, this isn't some, you know, like, fabulous, extravagant work of art. The guy is just a business a businessman. But, and he is just making a shit ton of yeah. money exploiting people. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I th- there are all these stories about how, like, he was taking, you know, like, tips of the wait staff and stuff in, in New York and all, all sorts of different stories like that. It's just the same shit you hear, like, any other... Well, like, if you've ever worked in hospitality at all, you know the kind of exploitation, yeah. the kind of really sort of debasement which goes goes on towards the staff. 
Yeah, I mean, like, ultimately, like, ultimately, he is a boss. And yeah. he, I mean, I, I, I've, uh, there was, like, a story recently about, um, apparently, Nazareth London wasn't, isn't a particularly nice place to work when he's around, uh, which mm-hmm. doesn't surprise me at all. And I think the thing is, I think there was something recently, I think it may have been the Evening Standard posted about, I think, what bartenders get paid at. Well, it might have been his chef de party gets paid at Nazaret London, and it was £13 an hour, which is obviously mm. not a huge amount of money. Um, but then everyone I know in hospitality who read that was like, yeah, it's not a lot, but that's also kind of like the upper end of yeah. what yeah. that job normally gets in London. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's just it's just that Salt Bay is so conspicuous that that becomes a story in itself. But like the, mm. the story is, is that hospitality workers just aren't paid enough. Um, yeah. Like even in London, where kind of hospitality is just like this absolutely kind of insane, exponentially growing market. Yeah. Like it grows and grows, and no one really gets paid anymore. I mean, it'd be great if that kind of led to a kind of uh, widespread discussion on food media about wages. But it's kind of just like a sort of a, a sort of clickbait, really, to get like another salt bay story, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, this this problem is definitely not unique to salt no. bay, and I think, I mean, in terms of comparisons, like, and this is a comparison. I've made a comparison with this guy and other people before as well, but I think it is just very apt in this situation as well, and that is DJ Khaled, um, <laughs> particularly particularly in the way that like he was able to sort of reclaim his his status as a meme and turn that into the business basically mm. um i don't think I, like he, like the only other person i can think of who did something even close to that is dj khaled you know like who turned his you know like just just the ridiculous shit that he would do in his music videos you know he just you know another one you know like that, that kind of just became his catchphrase right and <laughs> you know like but him like just like handing him just like handing these wads of money to these women in these videos like go go buy yourself a house like it's extremely <laughs> postmodern isn't it like reclaiming it's, it's, the sort of massive, ironic yeah. gestures like Ma- massively like right. Jean Baudrillard would absolutely is, love it if he was if he got and, to and, witness and, and, DJ yeah, like this is like it's for full on, you know, like there's some, yeah, crazy like simulacrum stuff going on here, right? <laughs> but like it's, uh, it's, um, especially with, with someone like DJ Khaled as well. I mean, like in terms of the actual product, it's like, you know, he himself is like, he calls himself a producer, but it's a producer in a very loose <laughs> sense of the word. Uh, this is why I use the, you know, use this comparison when talking about Elon Musk. You know, like I think, like, yeah, <laughs> Elon yeah. Musk is like the DJ, the DJ Khaled of of Silicon Valley, right? And like <laughs> Nusret is a bit like the DJ Khaled of like the food world, um, in the sense that like, you know, he, what what he puts together is because he's able to like, uh, like DJ Khaled's albums are all about these, uh, are just like these collabs between some of the biggest stars in the industry and he somehow manages to get like the biggest stars in like rap and r&b to like to 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 collab with each other on his albums and and he gets actual producers to produce those tracks and so he's a producer in the sense of like a movie producer right yeah and um like with with, um you know and then then he sort of like packages all of that with this ridiculous persona and this uh you know this this kind of larger than life yeah like living meme essentially (laughs) right and and like the salt bay is kind of like that right it's almost (laughs) like 
like you're a, you're a capitalist, but the capital you own is intellectual property. So you're kind of like yeah. lending your clout to other people so they can make a living off it. Like you're you're yeah. lending a verse on your track if you're DJ exactly. Khaled. I think like the comparison is very apt actually. Um, yeah. Like one, like I think Salt Bay and DJ Khaled have. I think Salt Bay catered DJ Khaled's birthday party. Oh yeah, I think yeah. that would right not surprise that. me at all. <laughs> no, they they <laughs> definitely so, so... definitely know each other. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know you know DJ Khaled's restaurants just opened in London. Oh like, really? Open, oh my he's god. Open, He's opened a uh, chicken wing restaurant called Another Wing. <laughs> no, uh, no <laughs> way! That's incredible. I didn't even know that. <laughs> uh, it, it, I think like it literally just opened this week, and like My all God. the, um, as far as I can tell, like it's just a standard kind of fried chicken place, except like just all costs the so- a lot. It costs a lot, and like all the sauces are like named after. They've got like it's called like they don't want you to win like truffle oh my sauce. god oh my god <laughs> like, like, don't, don't. <laughs> i love I, I love the thing i love about salt bay as well is the way he kind of brings together this weird mesh of european and u.s culture because like if you look at his instagram it's always like a footballer like danny welbeck followed by like drake yeah. or someone like he's yeah. really strange <laughs> mix of people <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's um I think the the football thing's quite interesting yeah. because I think one of the one of the reasons Salt Bay has succeeded is that he's generally kept his private life and kind of um private thoughts um quite secret and, and whenever he's actually sort of something's come out about what his like maybe politics might be like he was he obviously did maduro's dinner and then um, he was yeah and he um he did a uh, he did a uh he posted there's like an old picture of him as um <laughs> with a cigar sort of pretending to be yeah. fidel castro and that um that didn't go down with um well with like marco rubio and like, <laughs> a lot of the miami clientele yeah. um so like he's always got kind of got in trouble when stuff like that's been leaked but he generally keeps his thoughts private and i think it works because if you want to be a meme you kind of just have to be that person in the meme and not have like a life outside of that but like the the football stuff is kind of revealing of like this kind of like boyish enthusiasm for and like he clearly has out like all of them like i don't think it's the music or like any of the other celebs like you can see he's like genuinely, genuinely like excited and touched. Yeah. Like when yeah. like Luca Modric like turns up. <laughs> <laughs> I love um you mentioned the Fidel Castro post. The uh, the caption on that on his Instagram was they say you started a revolution too. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you could like one of his uh, major restaurants is in Miami. So like the Husanos there, like the the really sort of ultra right wing millionaires who live in the mini mansions which started the 2007 crash. They absolutely kicked off about this. And yeah, he he made a massive enemy with of, of uh, Marco Rubio as well, who he was sort of tweeting about the um 
the Nicolas Maduro thing as well. So he's, he's boiled a lot of piss in that part of America. <laughs> I was going to say that um, there's a weird way that Salt Bay gets written about. And I mean, I, I've been paying attention to kind of like the negative reviews of um, the restaurant in London. And like obviously when you opened in New York, it was kind of like a similar thing. And, and there is this, um, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily racist or even classist but it's there is kind of this um because you can't really review the food because it's just kind of it's just kind of standard state yeah it becomes mm-hmm. more about like sort of how can i drag the clientele and yeah. it's, it's like very much like this kind of satire on like nouveau riche tastes um mm-hmm. yeah and kind of like uh like Gemma collins has been and all uh, like these sort of yeah, yeah yeah these footballers have been and like what do they know about what do they know about taste or and, and obviously exactly. like he's got like a very rich arab clientele as well um and there, there's something i know I, i'm yeah i wouldn't go as so far as to sort of say it's ex- sort of explicitly racist but there, there is something kind of unsavory about it I, um, I think in this country like the attitude to anything kind of artistic <laughs> is deeply classist like when you think of, <laughs> you know, the, the backgrounds of actors, musicians and chefs as well, there's very much a stay in your lane attitude towards working class people. It, and the sense mm. of, yeah, the whole like footballer thing is, you know, you, they're allowed to splash out on all kinds of luxury consumption. They're, they're allowed to, you know, drive sports cars and stuff, but it's seen as, yeah, sort of leaving their lane a bit if they if they want to... Yeah, if they want to enter this world of fine dining, they can't. They're almost, they're almost, you know, not. They're excluded a little bit from the bourgeois world still. I think, despite the insane mm. wealth they have, and I think they're also not. They're not afforded kind of the. Um, I think there's this sense that they're just too stupid or too tasteless to yeah. sort yeah. of understand what good food exactly. is. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I don't think that's true. I think they're in as in on the joke as if. If I went to Nusrat, they're as in on the joke as I would be. Uh, yeah. They just have the money to be more in on the joke than I am. It's, I, I think everyone who goes there kind of understands what the joke is. I, I, I don't think they're, they're kind of like these kind of like outwitting sort of characters about any agency. I think they know it as much as, as anyone does. Well, like, and also, as professional athletes, they will be more conscious of diet than anyone, of course. So there'll be no ignorance there at all. Yeah, but I mean, I think you're absolutely right, especially in the sense that like this, this kind of idea of like nouveau riche and especially like in the world of like fine dining um, and yeah, sort of food culture, especially in Britain, right? Um, You know, which is so shaped by class and, uh, you know, which is where the discussion is so, uh, you know, shaped by class and... um, you know, I think I think especially there, you know, there is this like real sort of turning up of the nose at this. Yeah. Like this idea of like new money and, um, you know, like, oh, like, yeah, these people are upstarts, basically, you know, like this is, you know, they just have a lot of um, like like the way that a lot of like the British aristocracy will probably think of like Arab money, you know, is just like that. It's, yeah. yeah uh, you know, lo- 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 they have like lots of money, but no taste. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that sort of that discussion becomes, you know, especially apparent, you know, when you start looking at, like, you know, saying the just just how entrenched, um, you know, aristocratic attitudes and um, worldviews are within 
this world of fine dining. And despite the fact that, you know, it's something that has seemingly become a lot more accessible. Yeah, you know, I would say like in the last maybe five to 10 years, especially with the rise of luxury food entertainment. Um, yeah. You know, like so many, so, so many people feel like they can, you know, they can cook a lot of this stuff at home. Um, and so like a lot of these barriers on the one hand seem to be, um, you know, seem, seem to have been broken down. But at the same time, a lot of these attitudes, I think, are still very prevalent. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of them really come out when you're when you're looking at the way in which Salt Bay is discussed. And and yeah, like, I mean, you were saying like for you, like there was like a moment when it kind of like clicked. And like for me, it was the like there was this video doing the rounds and it wasn't even that long ago, but there was this video doing the rounds uh and it was this guy in this like full on like 1930s gangster outfit <laughs> at, uh, at Nusret. And, oh God, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like Salt, Salt Bay showing up with this like, like, yeah, this huge rack of ribs. And like, just like, cut, like <laughs> the way he cuts it even like doesn't look particularly good. <laughs> and the way it kind of like slams down the pieces of meat. <laughs> like, it almost feels like vaguely disrespectful. <laughs> but just <laughs> everything about it. Um, that, that Yeah, that that's the thing. It just like the whole thing just felt like such a, such a fuss. Um, the, yeah, like, I mean, it's just like, if, if it makes all of these aristocratic double barrel surname, you know, Tatler columnists <laughs> very angry then they, yeah good <laughs> I wonder what uh, I, I don't really have an issue with that I wonder what A.A. A. Gill would make of Salt Bay <laughs> I, genu- I genuinely don't know like I'm, I'm trying to picture that review but because uh, I think you would sort of appreciate the extravagance and this sort of panache of Salt Bay this A.A. Gill was a man who famously had 20 monkeys' heads on his mantelpiece. I think he would... Um, I mean, he would have eviscerated it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's an easy... It's an easy uh, I, mean, I mean, like... British restaurant reviewing is, is mainly about evisceration because... Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, British, British restaurant writers mainly kind of... I mean, I'd say since probably like the 80s, like a, a, a kind of satire on the upper class yeah. in a way. But, I mean, like restaurant reviewing before that was kind of like opera writing in the sense that mm. like all you're doing, you're, you're an upper class reviewer signaling to like up, other, other upper class people who can afford restaurants mm-hmm. that you kind of have taste. And then when restaurants start to become a bit more democratized, I think... Um, sort of around about, I mean, I would say probably like mid-80s when sort of the idea of modern British food was kind of being created. Mm. Um, there was this kind of sense that um, sort of upper-class French food was just like completely pretentious and completely past its sell-by date. And if you ever look at like a lot of those old sort of Gill reviews and I mean, when Jonathan Meads was reviewing as well, like a lot of it is kind of about puncturing sort of the taste of the upper class it yeah. kind of becomes this this, this satire um and, and i think Edgar was particularly good at that and he probably would have eviscerated salt bay but i think also probably begrudgingly would have sort of seen kind of like a fellow a fellow um i know they're both uh esthetes aren't they they're, they're, yeah yeah, um, yeah definitely i think game would have recognized game exactly um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, because um, that, that's the thing, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's especially in this country, like, Britain does have such a weird relationship with food. Yeah, after, like, the war, I think you kind of see, like, these diverging outcomes where you have, like, a working class, like, much, much more reliant on kind of an industrial food system. And then sort of the upper classes and upper middle classes kind of becoming, like, absolutely obsessed with European food and kind of seeing European food as sort of the apex of cuisine and this, yeah, I guess kind of like ignoral of of what British food is. And I think it happened with French food and then I think quite significantly with um, Italian food. And I kind of think that River Cafe, in a way, was kind of like the Nusret of its era. <laughs> uh, and I... Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray are like the salt bay of their time. Like, they they somehow they somehow realised that like people would pay like thirty quid for a plate of pasta, like very very simply done, <laughs> and and people would go there to be to be seen having this expensive plate of pasta. Um, <laughs> And um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's taken a very, very long time to recover from that. And I, I don't think uh, this idea that to be interested in good food or to want better food is necessarily like a sign of poshness or a sign of sort of wanting to be above your station um, no. is something which seems quite uniquely British to me. And I, I think it, I don't think we've, we've fully recovered from that. Yeah, and I mean, like, especially with the River Cafe and its associations with New Labour, uh, and um, I mean, what uh, what was Ruth Rogers' husband, Richard Rogers, or something, right? Um, yeah, yeah, Lord Rogers, Lord. Rogers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who's a, who's a Labour peer, and yeah, and I mean, just like the number of times that like Tony Blair and all of that lot were seen having lunches there, and um, a lot of the Brit pop lot as well, you know, um, and and sort of. It was ar- around that time of like the the mid nineties cool Britannia shit that was going on, right? And uh, you know, like it was a time when like every single creative industry in Britain was like seeing a a, a kind of boom, um, and a and a and a newfound global recognition. And I think it was like yeah, really like the first time maybe that that. Um, at least in Britain, that like food was was considered one of those creative industries as well, and mm-hmm. that's when you had like the rise of a lot of these, you know, celebrity chefs who became like household names, like Marco Pierre White and um, Nigella Lawson, and um, well Jamie Oliver later on as well. Um, who it was came at out the River, the River Cafe. Cafe exactly? Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, like and 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 a big appeal of that time was anyway this kind of end of history classless society right this post-class society which is something that you know new labor very much lent on and uh that i think like that's maybe also one of the reasons why we have this situation now where you know like discussions about food and class are so warped and 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 why you do have these situations where like you you have people like you know your paul emberies and whatnot um almost maybe like as a as as, as a reaction to that sort of post-class framing around food that you've got this uh, situation where you've got, yeah, these unheard writers talking about how, oh, 
eating polenta again, are we? You know, <laughs> it was it was Owen Smith who said he didn't really know what a cappuccino was. So he was like, <laughs> obvious. So, so, so I'm gonna, I, yeah, sorry, go. I, I'm gonna de- I'm gonna I'm gonna defend Owen Smith. <laughs> go on. So, so, so this was actually originally in the article that I wrote, and huh. I was talking about it with my editor, and he said, you know what, I I looked this up. And Owen Smith, if you if you look up the coffee shop Owen Smith was in, like as a joke, so they they put all the coffee names in Welsh. Yeah. Um. And when it says cappuccino, <laughs> they've written, they've written frothy coffee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next to it. And he, 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 I ah, mean, okay, <laughs> that does change things. I did not. So, like, I think the quote is something like, oh, they call it a frothy coffee here. And, like, it just sounded like... Yeah. Not to know what a cappuccino was. So, oh, I, I so did not I'm, know I'm that, gonna, no. So I'm, I'm going to, like, reappraise Owen Smith on, like, this one thing. that uh, he was stitched up by yeah. um, frothy coffee. Oh, yeah, he's forgiven. He should run for leader again instead of Keith. <laughs> yeah. We'll support him on this podcast. I, 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 I'd, like, take him at this point, but... <laughs> I think I think what I just says about New Labour and like River Cafe, like there is why did New Labour kind of adopt River Cafe as their kind of sort of like second HQ, and there is this kind of like third wayism about River Cafe's food, like it's not <laughs> the French, it's not like the sort of very intricate French food that was kind of then to sort of seen as the kind of like apex of food culture it's not working class british food but it is kind of this working class italian food that has been somehow sort of elevated to like a level of like unobtainability i'm, I'm sa- I, mean, I sound like i'm very negative in river cafe, uh, cafe. I, I actually think they're an extremely interesting restaurant that have um, <laughs> very little that gets written about it is actually interesting at all um mm. I, I think i think there's um they do have extremely like high prices like as like ridiculous as salt bay but then they also treat their staff really really well yeah they're mm. very well known like within the industry to to pay kind of high wages and to and they have like huge staff retention mm. um and i think at the moment there's like this big discussion within like the restaurant industry about like rising prices and like we can't pass this on to the customer and like river cafe like fuck that we're going to pass it on to the customer Mm -hmm. pass Mm -hmm. on all of this stuff and like to be honest maybe maybe restaurants should cost more like the river cafe yeah Yeah. so i think they're they're an interesting restaurant but yeah and then there's i think also like as you were saying like this end of history kind of idea in the 90s and i think food cult i mean we're still kind of so influenced by what food writing was in the 1990s. And I, and I kind of see food writing as this like amorphous genre, which kind of always reflects what like the major concerns of the time are. Mm. And so if you go back to like people like MFK Fisher and people like AJ Liebling, like MFK, MFK Fisher's writing to me is like a kind of celebration of being alive in like a time where, that was kind of a very precarious thing like just gone through sort of the biggest war that sort of in human history um right. and if you look at aj liebling's writing it's i think very much like about like the loss of like this kind of 
sort of era of Europe and particularly of Paris and, and kind of like this changing kind of like almost like unrecognizable sort of social rearranging that was happening at the time. He kind of tells mm-hmm. it through restaurants. And if you look at like a lot of the 90s writing, I think it's very much about lifestyle because there's there wasn't much. It felt like, like political debates had been sorted and there was this kind of burgeoning middle class who now wanted to kind of imitate the sort of eating habits of the upper class. So uh, the writing became much, much more about kind of this sort of attainable lifestyle and Mm -hmm. was very, very unpolitical. Mm -hmm. I I think in Nigella's writing, there is kind of like a personal politics and I think very much about sort of women reclaiming the kitchen as a as a as a space but but generally like the the writing at least in the mainstream wasn't political and i I think like the big thing about food writing now is food writing is very much again as it has always done um reflecting the concerns of its times which Mm -hmm. i think is this kind of reaction to immigration um and also the climate crisis which are Mm -hmm. completely intertwined and all of these things are food stories so it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting time for food writing i think there's been sort of mixed successes uh responding to that in the in the labor camp i think corbin is something that corbin (laughs) did very well you know with it obviously he was a vegetarian so that's the (laughs) the obvious solution to the whole uh, climate angle um, and he he was very big into, big into his falafel, and he was also uh, a don of the British Kebab Awards, which is something which is very close <laughs> to your heart, isn't it? It is. I, I I'm kind of like I I want to write about the British Kebab Awards at some point, but <laughs> it, I I think it's like a very kind of I know I don't know if you've ever like seen the like American sort of um what do you call it when they're when they're sort of candidates and they're, they're like touring America, like going around all the states and there, there always has to be like kind of food opportunity. Yeah. And it's like always uh-huh. Iowa State <laughs> Fair. They always go to State <laughs> yeah. Fair. It's normally Iowa. Um, and, and they have a corn like, dog. <laughs> and they have a corn dog. And like, there's, all, there's always like the big, there's like the other big thing about, um, it's like kind of apocryphal that like John Kerry ordered like a Philly cheesesteak in, in Philadelphia and like he ordered it with Swiss cheese. Oh. And like some guy was like, this is like the night, the time, like the moment I knew he was going to lose Pennsylvania. And like one, one, like one, like he didn't lose Pennsylvania. And two, I think he, he won it. And like the second thing is like Swiss, Swiss like is like a legitimate choice. Um, for a Philly cheesesteak, like they wouldn't offer it. It's like Wiz or Swiss, yeah. Um, like they, you wouldn't offer it if it wasn't like a legitimate choice. Um, mm-hmm. But I think like the closest Britain has to this is, or well, one like I think like the um, Ed Miliband yeah. bacon sandwich, the bacon sandwich, yeah, um, of course. But who, the British Kebab Awards like has like become this kind of way for <laughs> British politicians like to be seen off like as off the people and like kind of like this authenticrat kind of like yeah I eat a kebab <laughs> and like so you get like this like very weird situation where you have an award ceremony which is ostensibly for Turkish 
Kurdish and like Cypriot kebab owners. And yet like half of Westminster is also there and like Boris Johnson is like videoing in like (laughs) his love of kebabs and like his appreciation of like the Turkish contribution to like British society. Um, And like Sean Bailey's there and like Mark Francois is there and Jeremy Corbyn's there like talking about falafel and there's like a really I think in like 2017 it was like there's been a big swing towards falafel in the last two years. <laughs> Do South Asian kebab joints get nominated for it? Because I swear like Tayebs or something was like there at some point wasn't it? They might do actually um, they, they might have like branched out a bit um, right, right, like, right. Tayyip t- okay. t- t- being there would make sense. Yeah, of course it would as well. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but like, I, I do, I do like wonder. Like, I feel like the British Kebab Awards is like some kind of like scam, like that we don't <laughs> quite know about. Like, for one, like you have to pay a lot of money to enter. Like, I've yeah. heard this from like quite a few people. And then like the guy who started it is like also. He's not an MP, but he's, he's a like, councillor. He's like been like, he's yeah, he's like been, <laughs> he's tried to run for parliament like quite a few yeah. times on the Labour ticket, and then he was like his local, he like lives in Islington, so his local MP is Jeremy Corbyn, and like he campaigned for him, but then yeah. like, he also yeah. campaigned for Yvette Cooper, yeah, in like 2015. This guy's all over the place. Like, was, <laughs> that's a huge betrayal. <laughs> He did a fundraise for Owen Smith. <laughs> Didn't did he as well? <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> he's playing both sides in every in every contest. <laughs> he is. He's like very, very canny. So there's something like very strange going on at that awards ceremony. Ibrahim <laughs> Dogus is his name. And he, yeah, he yeah. founded the, the Centre for Turkey Studies. So it's it's weirdly kind of academic. The, the British Kebab Awards is very closely tied to this 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 cultural centre, and it's yeah, it's, it's definitely not the kind of like late night drunk, you know, like post club kebab, but the kind of thing which a lot of people associate kebab culture with. But like, uh, I always think about the whole kebab thing, like how, like, is there is there kind of Kurdish politics? entwined with it because it is it's such a big Kurdish symbol isn't it and obviously Salt Bay is another Kurd we didn't mention that yeah I, I did a um interview recently um with a friend of mine uh Melek Erdal who's a um a chef well cook chef recipe writer food writer as well and she says something like, very interesting about Salt Bay um which is that he's kind of like sort of the latest cog in this like long line of sort of palatable Kurdish figures who are kind of apolitical enough to yeah. be successful to be successful mm. within Turkey like as long as they don't speak up about certain yeah. issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then like also this uh, the other big thing which for, for me like as a learning thing came out of the interview was I mean I knew that probably most of the places that we think of as Turkish restaurants are partly Kurdish yeah. or owned yeah. by Kurdish people, but like mm-hmm. it's really actually kind of kind of like overwhelming, like the amount of mm-hmm. like the number of the great Turkish like Turkish in like inverted commas restaurants in London are actually owned by Kurdish people and sometimes like fully identify as Kurdish restaurants. Yeah. And a and a comparison that you make in in that interview as well is about how the 
and the vast majority of Indian restaurants are owned by Bangladeshis. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, exactly. <laughs> but they sell very much a, a, a North Indian cuisine. That's like the sort of very standardized North Indian cuisine. They don't really sell Bangladeshi food very, very frequently. That's that's for sure. The interesting thing about Salt Bay is he has a restaurant in Mykonos as well in Greece. So not only is he central in the kind of relations between Kurds and Turks, but he's he's solved like literally a thousands of years old conflict between the Byzantine and Ottoman empires. Like what is he, there is nothing he can't do. No, I mean, there's obviously the parallel with Bengali and Bangladeshi restaurateurs. Um, but as you say, like they were cooking a cuisine which kind of wasn't really their own or they were actually really making making a cuisine to be honest yeah 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 um, exactly. whereas i think these these restaurants are essentially cooking what is recognizable like as turkish yeah. food it's just mm-hmm. i mean how do you distinguish turkish from kurdish food when yeah you basically share the same geography it becomes more about like the identity of the person actually cooking it um mm-hmm. r- rather than the actual food which is Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a very interesting question. Antep, like my favorite restaurants, like Antep Lila, Kala, Diyarbakir, a lot of the Stone Newington restaurants as well. Um, mm-hmm. Like, are all Kurdish. I mean, we have the Mangals. There's this very good essay actually in um, this book that Owen Hatherley edited, um, Alternative Guide to London Boroughs, which uh, was released through uh, Open City by um, the Labour Council, actually. It's him going up three lanes with his father um, and kind of talking about the different factions on Green Lanes and how, mm-hmm. I mean, food media like presents like a very homogenous picture of Green Lanes as kind of just being Turkish restaurants. Yeah. Um, and actually, like, there's... There's all the there's all these sort of fragmentations like divided around down sort of political lines and mm-hmm. down religious lines and mm-hmm. between different waves of immigration. So like the Newington Green End is like much more kind of like nationalistic Turkish, yeah. like very um, like very religious as well, and um, a lot of kind of um, yeah, basically like fascists like would organise there. And um, and then further on up around Haringey, it becomes like much more explicitly Kurdish. Um, and then like, as you go further, but then up, also, be- but then also very mixed as well, like you were saying, because there's been generations of like Turkish Cypriots, Greek Cypriots as well. I mean, like there's like Baldwin's Butchers here, for example, like that, that's still here for from God knows how long. Um, and there was this like old. Um, I don't know, like antique shop, secondhand shop. I don't know, like just this old shop just around the corner from my house, which was run by this old, um, uh, this elderly uh, uh, Greek Cypriot couple, I think. And like one time my friend was visiting and we were just walking past and he just wanted to step inside just to take a look. And um, then, yeah, the, the, the lady who, you know, whose shop it was, she was just like just talking to us and just asking, you know, where we're from and stuff. And then just, uh, if we're, if we're local and I was just saying that I was just like, yeah, I live just, just around the corner. And she was saying, yeah, you know, and, um, you know, we, we, we came here in the, 
uh, in the in the 80s and 90s or whatever but yeah i don't know where you're from but you know now now there's just too many of them coming <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and uh and yeah it's just you can't afford it anymore you just you just can't afford it anymore <laughs> and uh that's when me and me and my friend we just uh politely decided to make our exit but <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> it was uh it, it, it's always just very funny it's, especially like in a place like this where you have these ways of immigration which are also like quite recent as well and they're very much layered on top of each other as well um but for the most part you know the, these communities very much exist side by side with one another i know absolutely I, I quite like the idea that like it's the kurds that are like gentrifying green lane yeah not like, <laughs> not like the fucking like coffee shop joke. yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean yeah Yasser Halim like was like a massive fixture of my childhood mm-hmm. and that is a place in my childhood imagination I always thought it was um I always thought it was Greek and it was mm-hmm. started by by Turkey Cypriots so yeah. th- there is kind of like this I don't want to don't want to like put it in romantic terms but like this like very interesting like amalgamation of cultures yeah uh, that, that's been more or less like fairly um, I don't want to say frictionless because there has been things, but like as far as places go, like I think Green Lanes is like a fairly, um, a fairly peaceful place to be. Um, and these, communi- these communities have been here what since the I mean the first probably Turkish Cypriots since the seventies, yeah. and I mean like a lot of the Cypriot restaurants up in like Wood Green, Palmer's Green, like you have Greek Cypriots working alongside Turkish Cypriots in a way that like maybe wouldn't even happen in Cyprus. Like a lot of lot of them have like told me um, it, it's kind of like a, Palmer's Green is like a space to kind of um, try and put aside like old sort of old rivalries and, and, and sort of um, and live side by side. So it, it's, it's Green Lanes is such a such an interesting place um i think if i ever wanted to i know i'm kind of like annoyed that um alternative guide to london kind of had that article, <laughs> like a, re- a really brilliant article so i would yeah, yeah, yeah. commission something myself for long time. <laughs> yeah. uh but i mean i think you touched on something really interesting there especially like in, in diaspora communities i mean it's something that you see in like south asian diaspora communities as well that in a place like London, you can almost have like an alternate reality of like what could have happened if the partition didn't happen, for yeah. example, you know, where you actually have a lot of these communities living side by side and working side by side, essentially. And like, you know, looking at Cyprus as well, for example, like it's, it's a similar kind of thing. Right. And um, this idea of like understanding uh, immigrant contributions in this country as well through food. Uh, you know, um, the very famously, obviously, Ron Atkinson doing "We all like a good curry," but now that we have the recipe, bit <laughs> you know, <laughs> which George Osborne fully unironically actually said in Parliament uh, <laughs> twenty years later. Um, that that but, is sort yeah, of the, the implicit rule of immigration in this country, at least for several decades after, <laughs> sort of until yeah. towards the end of the twentieth century. It was migration was this this purely economic equation, and the, the migrants within mm. it they were supposed to be kind of naked economic actors. They were supposed to you know come over and 
you know, quench your insatiable thirst for labour, but you had to leave everything else behind. You couldn't, like, all the culture you couldn't you couldn't take with you. And obviously, the most sort of grassroots ex- uh, expression of culture is is cuisine. And I, I think it is. It, it always has been inherently political in this country. Yeah, I think that's always that's always something in the back of my mind as someone who. I, at heart is a restaurant writer um, and, and specifically someone who writes about diaspora restaurants is like I think the pitfall that you can do when you're you're writing about that is to just always frame these restaurants as kind of like this is like beneficial to like me and as like and to kind of sort of white middle class society as like diversifying yeah, yeah, yeah. like our, our taste and um oh, isn't it good, like, all these restaurants are here, like, on uh-huh. the same street where I can, like, get a taste of this and a taste of that. Exactly. And yeah. I think that that's such, like, a, I think quite a dangerous way of, like, writing about it and, like, very reductive way of writing about it. Ultimately, like, a lot of these restaurants are, like, they're, one, they are economic considerations and they're also community spaces um, yeah. and, and, and their, their value is, like, very much towards their, their community as well. Um, but it kind of completely ignores, like, the reasons why people are in this country as well. Um, and, it, like, people didn't come here because, like, they wanted a white British guy to have, like, Rogan Josh or something. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, <laughs> they're, like, they're, like, extremely, like, complicated economic and geopolitical reasons why people yeah. are here and, like, and why London in particular. A lot of... A lot of complex geopolitical reasons led up to me being entitled to having Rogan Josh. <laughs> I think there's a way of telling that story through food. It's not the, not the only way, but it's a way that I think food is just the kind of like the uh, the MacGuffin to get people in. Like when I say MacGuffin, I mean is a phrase that Hitchcock kind of popularized um, to talk about like the plot devices in his film where it's not really about like the briefcase it's actually about something else and, and like food food is a way of doing that it's like a trojan horse to get people to kind of engage with these much bigger issues um and that's how i that's how i see like the writing that i generally like to read and and try to write no de- no definitely and um yeah, I mean, and and sort of moving to, to to start wrapping things up. I think, especially when it comes to you know the question of like diaspora cuisine and diaspora restaurants, um, and when you're looking at the um, at the idea of class within food, you know, and how like yeah, for for many people, you know, food items and specific you know items kind of end up getting these pretty arbitrary class signifiers attached to them. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when you actually look at like, in terms of like the material conditions of how the food industry is run, I mean, it's, it's very, very clearly class ratified. And it's one of the one that's kind of, it's, it's, it's one of the, the ones which have become clearest over COVID. And, um, the more we've sort of talked about essential workers and, you know, heroes and whatnot, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, you've got, you know, more and more restaurant stuff, delivery stuff, uh, you know, manufacturing stuff, people even working in the agricultural sector, you know, fruit pickers and things like that, for example. 
um, where, yeah, I mean, entire industries have had end up ended up having to come to a screeching halt um, in the last sort of year and a half due to a combination of both COVID and Brexit as well, actually, uh, you know, no matter how much we want to sort of turn our noses up at the FUB pilot, but I mean, it is true, <laughs> like it has had a big impact. I think the, the really odd thing in the hospitality industry at the moment is that there have just been decades and decades of exploiting workers and treating people just like complete shit yeah. that we got to this mm. unique situation when it's actually a bullish market, the bullish labor market at the moment. People actually yeah. have yeah. some space, some negotiating position to start from. Yeah. And there's actually, it's, People don't know what to do. People don't know how to organise to achieve. The, the workers don't know how to organise in order to achieve anything. There are yeah. almost no unions uh, other than, you know, like the yeah. independent workers of Great Britain. Uh, that Those kind of things which represents... But the problem is they're, they're very fragmented groups of people. But on the other side as well, I think you know, the, the none of the restaurants are doing the obvious solution to this problem, which is raising wages, you know, giving better benefits, exactly. improving conditions. It's almost like they've forgotten that that's an option. Like <laughs> British society has been so one way. It's been, it, you know, it, it, it can't just, it can't just on a, on a dime, just switch to, you know, actually, you know, <laughs> letting people, get what they want you know ordinary people who are not asking for a lot it's it's kind of a remarkable situation yeah i mean um i don't know if you read was it last or the one before um friday Bissell's article which yeah. um reese and um our biology on on twitter um wrote together um, okay and um about this kind of stratification of, mm -hmm. of of work within kind of the restaurant and agricultural sector and i mean that i mean their argument essentially was that this this is probably the biggest time when workers hold the largest amount of power that they've had in like in a long mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. and this is constantly being framed within food media as a crisis like mm -hmm. as a, as a, um but a crisis for who, really? Like it's mainly a crisis for for bosses of restaurants. So, so there there is this sense that I mean they they were mainly arguing for kind of wildcat strikes. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, food, food the food sector is like a sector where like things have to get to places like just in time, and any sort of disruption to that is just like any. Um, can be like a massive loss of money for like, anyone who's operating a restaurant. I, I think like the problem is, and this isn't like I, I knew, but I, I learned sort of intimately when I was writing my piece on food delivery, is this this sort of massive disconnect between like a lot of the sectors in the restaurant industry, and, and like the delivery companies have sort of built up this whole industry based on the fact that the delivery sector and the restaurant sector are separate um, yeah. and, and restaurants kind of almost like we're a little bit embarrassed about like delivery um, and, and didn't certainly didn't consider like delivery workers to be a part of like the restaurant like you have like front of house and back of house you have like, your, your sort of waiters and your chefs and like delivery jobs and kitchen porters as well like I think have both kind of been 
like sidelined and, and mm. like kitchen porters are mainly like hired through agencies now mm. um and i, I felt there's, there's this real like big kind of um resistance towards seeing the delivery driver as like a fellow worker that you are working alongside it, it's mm. kind of almost like you're in opposition like yeah the, the way that delivery works is that you order and then like the restaurant gets a ticket and then normally what happens is that like the driver turns up like within a few minutes and the order's not mm. ready the driver is being kind of like paid for their time yeah um and they get impatient uh the waiter uh, or front of house staff gets impatient because gets impatient because the sort of the drives in their restaurant and in the way and it, i mean the whole thing is like set up to, as kind of like this like negative solidarity and this, this is something that the um iwgb like i think have done amazing Definitely, work with yeah. but like, it's it's something it's something that is very very difficult to do it's like how to mm. generate solidarity yeah. between one between like even your delivery workers like delivery yeah. workers yeah, yeah, yeah. are competing against each other mm-hmm. um and, and generally like it's very difficult to like organize along those lines but then too like how to like how to achieve solidarity between all these different sectors yeah what uh hospitality workers and delivery drivers who are generally independent workers what what they have in common is there is this intentional fragmentation between uh between workers so even though they they're permanent workers they're employees uh generally people working in hospitality there is a very intentional transience and a very uh, and a very intentional lack of uh, staff retention, you know, like, um, like generally speaking in restaurants, cafes, the general it's the only industry in the world where like once you've done six months, people think, yeah, you've done a you've done a good shift. Now you can move on. Like yeah, generally yeah, yeah. sort of four, yeah, yeah. five, six months. It, it, that's this sort of standard term. And it is it is very hard just, you know, you you don't really get to know people in that time. It's difficult to build the kind of exactly. relationships which uh, allow uh, solidarity to thrive. And I mean, like, as someone who who works in the hospitality industry as well, myself, uh, you know, and, and has worked in, you know, other lines of precarious work before uh, as well, um, especially in, in these lines of work, you know, shift-based work, you are paid hourly, um, it's doubly difficult to, you know, try to unionize, to try to, you know, have uh, industrial action, to, to go on strike and things like that. Because, yeah, not only of the uh, insecurity of, you know, lost pay, especially when you're sort of, you know, living hand to mouth, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck. It's simply not possible to afford that, especially, you know, if you've got like a family to feed, for example. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, like you were saying, you know, like a lot of these, the, the way that these industries uh, are built you know like a lot of this gig economy is built as well for example is to essentially pit workers against one another yeah um and is to yeah put, put, put them in competition with one another so showing solidarity and standing in solidarity with one another is, is doubly disincentivized um having said that though you know like like, like you were saying you know like this is um because of the fact that there is such a shortage of stuff you know like um the industry actually like workers at this point actually have a greater bargaining power than than they've ever had before yeah. um or not maybe than they've ever had before but at least you know for 
not 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 in a while. I mean, if you if you look at it in terms of vacancies, I mean, it literally is like never before. I think like in the hospitality industry, I mean, it's like up to about 200,000 vacancies and stuff like that. I mean, it's huge. And, and, and you know, you've got, you've got like, you know, the British government. I mean, and, and okay, the hospitality industry aside, I mean, you're looking at like food production, logistics and so on as well. Uh, you know, you've got, especially because of Brexit and the, and the loss of cheap European labour, um, you know, you've got a situation where you've, you have food shortages and, you know, you've got the British government, you know, desperately putting out billboards in like spain and stuff like saying come work here you know um you know i I think there was this quote from this uh polish lorry driver who was just talking about how like yeah like they think that they can just like treat us like you know like a commodity you know that they can just hire us to like come and just do this job and then just like tell us to fuck off again like and sorry but we're not gonna do that and like of course not like why why should they do you know what i mean the whole um like billboard adverts was a big thing during the wind rush era but the problem is obviously like back then people didn't really jamaican people didn't really know that much about the uk whereas nowadays people can quickly just google like birmingham and just say (laughs) nah it's not really for me like they can they can very quickly do some research like it's not not as effective anymore Uh, definitely. And, 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 you know, like, especially like, I think over 2020 global food, uh, food insecurity, like shot up. And, um, I wrote something last summer as well about, you know, like the, the knock on effect of, um, Cyclone Amphan in the Bengal Delta and sort of Bengal's own history with food insecurity and with famine and sort of understanding how, how these systems are incredibly complex and, you know, like change, like, structural changes to the economy and to yeah to to, to to the way that we actually organize these industries um end up having huge knock-on effects which are sometimes completely sort of unpredictable as well and, and unforeseeable or maybe not unforeseeable but like people don't um don't account for them you know when they make these decisions um which actually end up in sort of catastrophic widespread food shortages which is what famines are you know i mean it's not it's not because of a lack of production of food it's because because of a a food distribution problem that's how you have famines um and and so especially you know like looking forwards uh you know the increasing intensity of climate events and the definite impact that it's going to have on actual production capabilities around the world um let alone distribution capabilities like it's it's so important for us to be able to rethink these things, right? Um, you know, um, this is, as soon as food enters the market as a commodity, you know, like what what ends up happening to it and what the you know the the, the long lasting consequences of that are, and and you know we've we've seen it firsthand, you know, like we've seen what can actually happen when um, these these things aren't accounted for. You know, you 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 end up with millions starved to death. Um, and there's a very real, you know, chance, like possibility of these kinds of things happening as you move forwards, you know, like, and, and that, I think that's why, you know, it's it's so important for us to be able to think about these things and, and be able to frame these things in a different way. Yeah, I think like food really is at the nexus of like a lot, basically like the issue of the next kind of century really actually mm-hmm. um it, it, is that is that the nexus of um 
of climate change, of of um, of capitalism, of immigration, um, and and yet like it's it's often like so it's so like underutilized, I think, by the left as a subject, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, you have like, very few leftist publications that actually like really really engage with food in like a significant mm-hmm. way, and I, I think like. Like one exception to that is uh, like something like the New Socialists, which mm-hmm. um, they their ecologies um, sort of season has been like really exceptional, and they mm-hmm. they also published um, Amadeep's um, Singh Dillon's article mm-hmm. like last year on um, mm-hmm. the protests in Punjab. The, 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 the like, protests, yeah, yeah, exactly. But then like the long history of that and like and mm-hmm. the the implications. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think I I am hopeful though that I th- I think these these issues have been covered um, by by much better food writers than me and like continuing to be covered. So I I think you're you're going to kind of see like I I I feel like a very kind of really in- politically engaged and robust like food writing over the next kind of decade, um, like compared to like what we got in the nineties where. Uh, hopefully like what food writing starts to mean is not like reviews and and recipes necessarily mm-hmm. but like how to, like i i i feel like i like, amadeep's article was a piece of food writing to me like mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. is like an important piece of food writing yeah um and, and i think you're going to see more of that um more of that engagement over kind of the next the next few decades so I think it's a yeah. I think it's a, a good time to be a food writer actually because you're you're kind of you're dealing with there's there's nothing more important at the moment really. Yeah, and I mean like um, sort of post austerity in Britain as well. How prevalent malnutrition has actually been, you know, like anyone who's worked in any sort of any any sort of social work, um, you know, like for example, when I was working as a TA in a school in South London in Mitcham, um, you know, which is one of the poorest boroughs in the country. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, just one of the most common things that you would see among a lot of the kids was just the fact that they wouldn't eat properly at home. Um, you know, uh, they wouldn't have breakfast before they'd come into school. Um, and, um, you know, like that that's the thing, you know, like when we're talking about, you know, like the, the crises that are possible here. Yeah, like it's it's not about the availability of food, you know, like Britain is one of the richest country. Britain in 2021 is one of the richest countries that's ever existed. You know, like the, the lack of resources is not the issue, um, you know, in a country like this, when cases of malnutrition can double in a decade. Cases of scurvy. Scurvy making a comeback, you know, um, it's 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 not a joke. And it's like it's really like um you know, like that, that's why, you know, it's, it's so important for us to be able to, yeah, like you're saying, to be able to, 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 to really think of the full implications of, you know, what, what food actually are. Um, but yeah. When um, I see like a really dystopic headline, like the one about scurvy coming back, I always, oh. I always in my head, it just plays that, you know, the countdown presenter, Rachel Riley, she, tw- the tweet she did after the 2019. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Britain. Like whenever I see a headline, which is like, 
privatized water companies have pumped so much feces <laughs> into the streams that all the swans have legionnaires disease or whatever like in my head i'm just picturing <laughs> thank you britain like heart emoji <laughs> oh god grim it's it's it's, 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 such, it's such a shame that like I, I think like the mainstream reaction from food media to engage with these kind of issues has been solely through the filter of Brexit. yeah yeah. Um, and, yeah. and kind of like whenever it comes up, it's kind of like a way to kind of say like, Aha, like we told you so that this would happen. It's, it's kind of like very, very weird how like the food writing world suddenly became suddenly like went from this like apolitical space, like all the newspaper food sections are essentially apolitical spaces that operate within like larger sort of political spaces which are the papers but they suddenly became um political over the issue of brexit um and it was kind of like all of a sudden like ah food is political but like their politics were that of like change uk yeah Um, (laughs) they're they're all just lib dems (laughs) (laughs) but then but then like you had like the free school meals issue come up like yeah. during yeah, yeah, like yeah. Corbyn's tenure at Labour um, and you had like a lot of these food issues come up and like the, the one thing which like really kind of the attack line which always struck me as like the like funniest thing was like how Corbyn got monstered for having an allotment yeah um, like as if like to grow your own food was like yeah. like a sign of being like like the upper class like basically like yeah. he's like landed gentry for having yeah. <laughs> They're sort of coming back in major cities, aren't they? Allotments all over the world. It's uh, once again, jazz did not miss. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. At, at the time when we had like a political party who wanted to kind of look into these issues more deeply. Yeah. You had like like actual like idiots arguing like free school mills were like, what is the big, um, was it LBC? was like um, yeah 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 the, the free school mills tweet like this show yeah. like, the nasty side of labor is this the really nasty <laughs> side of labor <laughs> and, yeah, universal, yeah and universal benefits because i mean this, yeah, yeah. it's it's not it's not a food poverty issue it's a poverty issue exactly um, and it always it always gets bogged down in really like disingenuous arguments about logistics and stuff. It's like when Labour said that in 2019, one of their policies was to like plant a couple of million trees or something. And then every single Oxbridge educated journalist was like trying to crunch the numbers. Like, how are they going to plant some trees? Like, was, just fucking throw some seeds out of a car. It's not difficult. Like, it's... <laughs> When 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 Thomas Sankara tra- planted like two million trees over a weekend in Burkina <laughs> yeah, Faso exactly. in yes. <laughs> it's not actually that. But yeah, it's it's like amazing, like kind of like decades on, like stuff that like Sankara did is like mm-hmm. being framed to us as this kind of like laughable possibility. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is, yeah. Um, if I like, think about it too much, it kind of makes you angry. Mm. Um, Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, 
that is probably a good time to wrap things up as well so just kind of keeping an eye on the time but um i think we've covered pretty much most of the things that we wanted to uh i think at least from from the notes uh uh but yeah just um generally i mean it's 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 this has been really great like really very just a really great chat honestly uh very informative and uh um yeah, I think like like I said, I I do feel very strongly about a lot of this stuff as well, and I think it is. I think I I would implore anyone listening to this to also, um, yeah, to to read Jonathan's writing and to uh, uh, also uh, yeah to just be able to maybe think about food in a slightly different way because uh, yeah, I think that there is there is a lot of work to be done um, on that front. Um, but yeah, once again, thank thanks so much, Jonathan, for for coming on. This has been really great, a lot of fun. Um, uh, did you uh, have any plugs or any shout outs or any social media that you wanted to say before we wrap up? I would say that there are so many great food writers and not just sort of only food writers, but people writing mm-hmm. about labor and mm-hmm. people writing about cities and people writing about politics where where food is part of it. Um, who you can mm-hmm. read at the moment. And I, and I think if you were going to, if I was going to like say two things mm-hmm. from Vittles, which you should read it's one the latest one which we talked about the um the piece on um yeah. hospitality called you are yeah. not replaceable um and but then also um one of the um one of the groups of writers who i'm really privileged to publish um i've published them twice mm-hmm. as angry workers who who write from again from a yeah. workerist perspective but they um are mainly writing about um, food mm-hmm. production, um, and, and they're they're actually based mm-hmm. in Park Royal, um, the big industrial park where where a lot of London's food is manufactured. Um, a, a lot of like ready meals for um, like supermarkets uh, are made there in, in kind of pretty grim mm-hmm. conditions, and I mean they've dedicated like a lot of their lives basically to organising um, politically within these. Um, within these sort of food production mm-hmm. spaces, um, mainly with workers who've been like very, very marginalized, um, either because of their gender or because um, of their language, of their um, mm-hmm. language skills. Um, and they're, they're doing really, really yeah. vital work. So I, I would say mm-hmm. read those and then like read like all the links. Um, and um and yeah, there's there's so much there's so much out there that's um, sort of exciting stuff that's been written on this topic. And, and as I mentioned before, like the new socialist season, I, I think it's like one of one of the best um, sort of series I've seen lately. Um, like explicitly explicitly engaging yeah. with agriculture from a from a leftist yeah. perspective. Uh, this has yeah. been quite a turkey centric podcast, so we should probably shout out the Republic of Armenia. Just. Give them some appreciation. Uh, sh- shout out uh, yeah. in Kandawa. Shout out to Gukuzu. <laughs> uh, and uh... Uh, one, one thing which I didn't actually mention in my article is that um, I'm pretty sure like Sizen Borak denied the article. Oh. <laughs> um, like he. Um, he, I, I think it was when Kim Kardashian like made a, a right. tweet about it. Like he tweeted <laughs> like him like dressed in the Turkish flag with loads of Turkish <laughs> Jesus saying that like Turkey w- t- Turkey wouldn't <laughs> and like like Kim <laughs> well. Kardashian in. Um, so um, 
I think that was kind of like a bit of an Easter egg in my article. I didn't, yeah. I linked to it, but I didn't actually write about it. Um, but yeah, the, the discourse is very, very bad. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, like once again as well, uh, you know, massive, massive thanks for today. Um, where can people find you on social media as well? The Mario Nun um, on Twitter. Um, and um, well, I'm trying not to be as much on Twitter as I used to be. Coward. Um, and uh jonathan jonathan dean on instagram which is where like most of my food nice. stuff, stuff is now like all, all the pics yeah uh definitely definitely uh i mean in, in in the unlikely chance that you don't already follow jonathan do can follow um because yeah really very uh big fan and uh yeah now's the time that i can say that uh yeah um I've always been a, a huge fan of, of your writing, so it's been a, an honour to have you on. Honestly, thank you very much. Um, thank you. No, it's, um, it's an honour to be on. And, and if you're if you're listening, um, if you're listening to this podcast and actually haven't listened to the episode before, like go back and like listen to like I, I've learned so much um, from the people you've had on um, like over the last few months, like Ahmadib's uh, episode, Perry's episode. Um, oh. The Tom yeah, Usher episode, just, just every, 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 no, not, not the Tom Usher. Uh, that was that was a bottle uh, episode. Because uh, I, I, I had, I had imposter syndrome coming on here. No, like real pleasure oh, to be on. No, thank, thank you so much, honestly. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, as as always, um, Arjan. Um, at Arjanistan on, on Twitter. And I'm Rory at Armenian Salt Bay on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, at Leftover Pod, patreon.com forward slash Leftover Pod. Um, if you like what we do, uh, please, um, yeah, do give us a support. Um, it does help a lot. Massive thanks to people who are already supporting us. We do promise premium content is coming. Yeah, massive thanks to Connor for the production, to cardio for the music to all of you for listening and we'll catch you guys next time cheers the price of fame shit real but fame man fuck this shit but dame DJ Kenny I can't even go to sleep just to get in my VIP Trust you. I'm suffering. 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 I'm Money, nigga, fuck this chain. Fuck my watch, you can have that ring. Keep my whips, you can have that fame. So stressed out, I'm going insane. Young nigga can't even sleep at night. All this money, I done seen in life. More cash, bring more haters. Fuck around and win them all the chopper twice. Cause I'm paranoid and I bury boy. If he playing with mine, and it's oh lord. Please don't make a nigga do that. Please don't make a nigga do that. You don't know what the fuck I've been through. Plus, my lawyer texting me too. What my baby mama be tripping. Talking about child support, I can't do it. I don't trust nobody but God. Holy these foreigners walked in my yard. Swear last night I swear.
swim than that money Then woke up in a million dollar car Boy, I'm too stressed, so blessed Please somebody pray for me I'm suffering from success, Lord Got too many racks on me I can't even go to sleep Just to get in my VIP I'ma need the CID I don't trust you I'm suffering